Welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode, we will present panel one of Capital Weekly's Energy Forum, which was presented on Wednesday, November 17th. The topic of this panel discussion was renewable energy, and it was hosted by Sammy Roth, a journalist from the Los Angeles Times. Support for Capital Weekly's Energy Forum was provided by TASSEN, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, the California Building Industry Association, Lucas Public Affairs, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, Pandora, and the California Professional Firefighters. And we'll get started with the program now. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Welcome and thank you for coming to Capital Weekly's Energy Forum. We're fortunate to have a wonderful lineup of experts here with us this morning. I'm Molly Dugan, board president of Open California, a nonprofit with a mission to inform, enlighten, and educate Californians about public policy and state governments. In addition to quarterly conferences like this one, Open California publishes Capital Weekly, a source of reliable news and expert opinion, the very popular Top 100 list, the Daily Roundup, fascinating oral history projects, and insightful weekly podcasts. Check out this week's episode on redistricting. If you like what you see, please consider donating to us. There's a button on the Capital Weekly website. I'd like to thank all of today's panelists, moderators, and sponsors for their continued support. And thank you to Open California's wonderful staff, Executive Director Tim Foster, Editor-in-Chief John Howard, and Office Manager Jyoti Alexander. Thank you again for coming and supporting us. And with more about today's programs, here's Tim Foster. Thank you, Molly. Uh, my name is Tim Foster. I'm the executive director of Open California, which is the 501c3 nonprofit that publishes Capital Weekly. We invite you to go to the Capital Weekly website and look for all of the things we produce, sign up for the roundup so you can get daily political news in your inbox so you are uh, up to speed at the water cooler, although I guess no one's really at the water cooler. Sorry, that's my dog uh, barking in the background. Um, thank you so much for, for signing in today. And as I mentioned, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, and I want to thank our sponsors for this event. Uh, we're lucky to have underwriters who allow us to put on these kind of conferences, and without them, we just could not do this. And first up is TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. They've been a supporter of ours for as long as we have been around, uh, and I'd like to thank them very much. Also, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, the California Building Industry Association, Lucas Public Affairs, <clears throat> pardon me, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, Pandora, and the California Professional Firefighters. And again, we just couldn't do these kind of events if we did not have the support of organizations like them. And I, I want to thank them for supporting these public discussions. And with that, we're going to move on to today's discussion, which is the first of three panel discussions uh, on the topic of an energy forum. We have been like most people in California watching uh, wildfires and the effects of climate change and wondering what the state can do to combat climate change and how that's going to affect the state and our energy supply. And so our first panel of the day will look at renewable energy. We are extremely lucky to have Sammy Roth as our moderator. Sammy is the energy reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Uh, 
I imagine if you were interested in this topic, you have followed his reporting. And so with that, I'm going to uh, to ask our panelists to, to turn their cameras back on and, and unmute themselves and Sammy. And then also let you know, if you have questions, please pose them in the Q&A function. We'll try to get to those at the end. Thank you again for doing this. And uh, Sammy, it's off to you and I'll, I'll get out of the way. Great. Um, thanks, Tim. No, I appreciate your putting together such a, such a good panel this morning. I think we're going to have a really interesting discussion. Um, you know, as you sort of alluded to, this is a, a fascinating and important moment in, uh, you know, in California for our renewable energy and, and climate change targets. We have this, you know, 100% clean energy law in the books with a, a 2045 target date. Uh, you know, there are questions from the climate science about whether that's soon enough. At the same time, we're starting to, you know, face face challenges and figuring out how we're going to get there. There were these brief instances of rolling blackouts last summer, which everyone probably remembers. Uh, Tim mentioned wildfires, which are, you know, leading to these uh, these public safety power shutoffs on the grid designed to prevent fires. We've also got fires threatening to affect the electric grid and, and cause blackouts at certain times. We've got electrification happening, uh, these, these efforts to not only move to electric vehicles, but also to electrify uh, heating and cooking in buildings, which is something that's going to place more importance and, and potentially stress on the electric grid. Um, so there's a, a lot of important stuff to talk about. Um, before I ask any questions, I just want to ask our panelists to, to briefly introduce themselves uh, so you know who you're hearing from. Uh, let's, uh, let's do this uh, alphabetical. Dan, you want to go first? Sure. Thanks so much, Sammy. My name is Dan Jacobson. I'm a senior advisor to Environment California. Environment California has worked on some of the issues that you were discussing, the first RPS for California to get to 20% by 2020 and the subsequent ones since the million solar roof spill and SB100, which is putting us on track to get to 100% clean energy by 2045. And I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, Dan. I remember. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, it's nice to join you all. I'm Regina Sahota. I'm the Deputy Executive Officer for Climate Change and Research at the California Air Resources Board. Um, I've worked on our scoping plan, which is the actual blueprint to hit our um, climate targets for 2020, 2030, and now we're looking up to carbon neutrality. Have been um, lead for the agency on working on the SB100 report jointly with the CEC and the CPUC. And um, my team leads the SB350 IRP integrated resource planning target setting for the sector and the utilities. Great to be here and look forward to the conversation. Thank, thanks very much, Rajendra. Uh, John? Um, I'm John White with the Center for <clears throat> Energy Efficiency and Renewable Technologies. We're an advocacy organization comprised of, of both environmental NGOs, environmental justice groups, and renewable and clean energy developers. We work a lot on implementation uh, at the PUC, Cal ISO, and CEC, as also LADWP. And uh, Julia, last but not least. Great. Um, great to be here this morning. I'm Julia Zuckerman. I lead external affairs in the Western states for Clearway Energy Group. Um, so Clearway is one of the largest renewable energy companies in the United States. We're a developer and a long-term owner-operator. We've got projects in 25 states, um, but we're headquartered here in California. Um, and in-state, we own and operate about 1,700 megawatts of renewable energy, which is enough to power about half a million homes. And we are looking to triple that over the next decade with the projects we have under development. Um, so really great to be here today and excited to talk with you. Great. So I am, um, you know, and, and by the way, as Tim said, if folks have questions, uh, leave them in the comments and, and we'll get to those in the final portion of this. Um, you know, I think I want to start uh, by asking a question that I'm not sure if the right term would be deceptively simple or deceptively complicated, but 
um, you know, we'll, we'll get into details of this, but I want to ask, are, are we on track right now in California to, to achieve 100% clean energy by 2045? And, um, you know, if, if we are on track, why? And if we're not, why not? And, you know, Rajinder, since you're working on, a, as you mentioned, the, the SB100 plan uh, tracking how we're going to get there, I, I think I'll start with you for that one. Sure, happy to take that first. So I think this is, this is the joy of working on these large planning documents. In any one of these documents, you can show the path to hit the target or achieve the goal that you're trying to achieve. And we've done that in the SB100 report. We've looked at a core scenario. We've looked at other scenarios for how to go about doing that, including an aggressive scenario to actually get to um, carbon, uh, zero carbon retail sales by 2035. I think the challenges are going to be coming on the implementation side. We're already seeing... Um, local ordinances on limiting utility scale solar happening across the state. And so the state plans, the state targets and the statutes are running right into local land use decision making and what local residents want to have happen in their communities when they look out their windows, when they go for a walk, et cetera. And so I think that there, there is going to be a barrier here that we have to try and overcome to remain on track. And that has to be how do you join the state level targets, the plans with the on the ground implementation when it's different agencies at that level making land use decisions? So that's a that's an interesting point you raise. This is a topic I've covered a lot on these local land use and opposition to solar and, and wind farms in certain places where they're getting built. Um, we should definitely talk more about that. Uh, John, I want to just switch to you here just because usually when you and I talk, it's uh, to talk about concerns that you and your partners have on things that the state isn't doing that it could be doing to, to get to 100%. Uh, what, what do you think? Are we on track? No, we're falling behind. Okay. And the problem is simple that we are relying on the dirtiest resources that we have left available to keep the lights on. We're running 15,000 megawatts of diesel generation with no restrictions. Governor has waived the air quality limitations that were put in place by air quality districts on the gas plants. All of this to keep the lights on uh, this summer and next. Um, and uh, while we understand the need for reliability, uh, this, this is not a failure of renewable energy. This is a failure of planning and execution. And I agree with Regender that the challenge is implementation, but I don't think the local government land use decisions have nearly the same effect as the actions that have been taken by the governor and the state to keep the lights on and to basically continue our dependence on natural gas. We have a lot of renewable projects uh, that are in the queue that could be developed that could help us displace uh, this gas and diesel, but we're behind on deployment, we're de 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 behind on transmission. And so we have a lot of work to do to catch up. Hmm. Several points there that I definitely want to get into in more detail, but let's uh, let's let uh, Julia weigh in now. Yeah, absolutely. And I I, I really agree with, with what um, John was just saying about the need to scale up deployment and transmission. So the, the SB100 joint agency report that uh, Regina, you worked on was incredibly important. And I think that it was really a wake up call for the state. So what that report showed was that we can get, we can get to that SB 100 goal, but to do that, it, we need to be adding about six gigawatts of wind, solar, and storage every year between now and 2045. And over the last decade, on average, we've built about a quarter of that every year. So we need to quadruple what we're building every year and then do that every year for the next 20 years. From the industry perspective, we would love to do that. We are we are eager. We have lots of projects in the queue. 
Um, but it is going to take a shift in how we plan. And unfortunately, for the last couple of years, we've really been in a cycle of catching up and kind of just in time um, procurement, which is is just is not an effective way to build large scale infrastructure. But we know where we need to go, and I I will say we we are seeing more understanding, more ambition from the energy agencies, understanding that when it comes to transmission, for example, the way we've been building and upgrading our transmission system has been really piecemeal, like one project at a time paid for by the project coming online. If you look at the scale that we need to build over the next 20 years, like we, we can't, that can't be how it happens. We need to be thinking bigger and doing more proactive planning. So I think, you know, we can get there from here and, and you know, as the industry building these resources, we, we think we can do it. Um, we do need, we need a lot of ambition and, and dedication to get that steel in the ground. Dan, what do you think? I think your question was very deceptive as you wanted it to be. So um, congratulations on that. But it's hard to disagree with these folks. But I look at it as a half full proposition, as if you look where we were 10 years ago to where we are now, we've made incredible progress with the renewables. I mean, we had really almost no large-scale solar, no large-scale wind. And to be able to do what we've done in those past 10 years, I think is one of the key lessons that we have to look back to. We wouldn't be, you can't go from zero to 100 without going through 20, 30, 40, 50% in order to get there. And so we've got to take the lessons that we've learned. And I agree with everybody here and what they're saying, we have to be able to go faster but the past 10 years have been amazing in terms of what we've been able to do with renewable um, energy here in the state. So I want to, a bunch of things I want to circle back to here, but, you know, the points that, that John and Julia raised um, in, in particular, I mean, this idea that we're kind of reacting in sort of an emergency way right now as reliability issues start to, to come up. I mean, you know, as, as John mentioned, there have been, uh, you know, these orders to keep gas plants online that were supposed to, to shut down last year. It looks like, you know, here in Southern California, those are going to keep operating for several years. Um, you know, uh, increased use of diesel. There was a pretty stunning report out a couple months ago on just the enormous amount of diesel generation that's been added in California over the last year as we've had these reliability challenges. Um, you know, Julia, you mentioned the the PUC sort of reacting in, in sort of an emergency fashion with these um you know, procurement orders that that folks have been saying we needed for a while and kind of rushing those out at, at the last minute as we we see these challenges starting to hit us. Um, what do we need to do to get ahead of these challenges and start, you know, I guess start dealing with these issues in a way that's more systematic or proactive, whether it's, you know, whether it's getting that build out of renewables happening a lot more quickly, retiring the fossil fuel generation when it's supposed to be retired. I mean, how do we get ahead of this stuff that we, you know, arguably scrambling and, and a bit behind on right now? And I'll, I'll open that up to whoever wants to take it. You mind if I go first? Please go for it. All right. Thank you. Um, so this is one of the questions that we're grappling with at CARB right now in terms of just how do you transition every sector to be able to make the state be carbon neutral no later than 2045? And there's a couple of themes that are emerging. The first is this decade has to be big on investment and resources for infrastructure build out, including transmission, including hydrogen fueling, all those pieces for the other sectors, but infrastructure build out, knowing that there's gonna be huge and dedicated costs there, but then accepting and being okay, knowing that the payoff is going to be 
in the future over the next 20 to 25, 30 years and avoided damages from climate change. And so it's a new way of thinking in that you have to put in a lot now with a longer payoff in terms of benefits for that investment. And I think that's something that people need to get comfortable with because as, as, as the state, we see the budget season happen every year and it's what's needed immediately in the budget season, right? It's not about these long-term plans. And I know that we've done many scoping plans at ARB. There've been many plans done um, for how to move forward on the energy side, um, transmission build out, all of those plans. But I think there needs to be a, a serious acknowledgement that this is a priority and we need to just say, we're willing to put that huge resource in terms of money and time and effort and now to get it started and moving in that direction. I think one of the things that's a piece of good news is the recognition on the part of the administration, uh, in particular, the uh, follow-up to the SB100 report, which, as Julia said, gave us a very clear path um, that had been obscured by the separate proceedings at the PUC. So then we got a big picture out of this SB100 report, and now we have an implementation process uh, based at the CEC on interagency planning and cooperation that is giving us that big picture that we seem to have lacked. The other thing I want to uh, follow up on uh, is from what Dan said, the other progress that's been made in the last 10 years is the cost of clean energy has fallen dramatically. And so, you know, I think the mindset at the PUC that led to this just-in-time transmission planning is that, oh, we don't want to add too much of this too soon because it's more expensive. But the opposite is the case. It's cheaper. If you look at the price spikes on the gas system uh, that we've had both at the wholesale level and uh, within the state, uh, every time we have a flex alert and a tightening of the grid, the price goes way up. So we have pollution, we have costs, and we have options, okay? And that's the key to remember, you know, uh, distributed energy resources can play a role along with utility scale resources, hybrid solar storage, these kinds of technologies can do a lot to displace the current uh, fossil fuel system, but what we got to focus on implementation. And I'll jump in. I think, you know, what, what we really need and, and are starting to see, like, to be clear, like, this is, I think things are moving in the right direction. We need signals to, to invest that are long-term enough that we have time to move. So, you know, Clearway, we just put into construction our Daggett solar and storage project, which is a project we're, we're very excited about. It's in San Bernardino County. Um, it is sited next to a retired coal and gas power plant. Um, so it is able to use some of the uh, transmission infrastructure from that project and also is just really telling the story of the energy transition. It's going to be 482 megawatts of solar and almost 400 megawatts of battery storage. So this will be a project that's really, it's not only providing clean energy, it's providing clean capacity and reliability to the grid. And that project's under construction now. The first phase of it will be complete um, toward the end of next year. But, um, and we're, you know, this project will be able to help meet our summer grid reliability needs in, in 2023 and beyond. Um, but we've had this project under development for years. You know, if, if the PUC had just come out this year and said, oh, we need projects like this, can you bring it online next year? There would be, there'd be no way that we could get the, the planning done, the procurement of you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of equipment. Um, so we were heartened to see you know, an important decision that the PUC issued this year was the midterm uh, 
procurement order, which is looking ahead to the 2023 to 2026 period and saying we need 11 and a half gigawatts of new resources online during that period. That's a really important step because that's a time period where we have time to actually develop new projects, bring them online in time to meet those deadlines, where if the time frame is next year, we're just really limited in, in how much we can do because of how long these, these projects take. Um, on the transmission side, we have done this before successfully as a state. So the Tehachapi Renewable Transmission Project is a transmission project that was initiated in 2004 and was really forward thinking. And this, the PUC essentially saying, we see that there's an incredible wind and solar resource in Kern County and not a lot of transmission to reach it. Let's do, it was like a field of dreams. Like if we build it, they will come. Um, Authorize that project, and it has been incredibly successful. Now, that project took 12 years to complete, so it came online. It was completed in 2016. We are still, I think, just now bringing the last of about 5,000 megawatts of new resources online that are taking advantage of that system. So that was a really good example of the kind of proactive planning. We, we need to be doing more of that and, and using that as the model um, for how we're going to meet those goals going forward. Well, that's that's interesting to me. This is some real back of the envelope here, but I mean, 12 years from now, if you started on one of these tomorrow, that's uh, that nearly gets you to uh, 2034, uh, which is, uh, you know, I know we have this 2045 target, but but uh, President Biden's talking about 2035, and there's a lot of, uh, I mean, City of Los Angeles now has a 2035 target, so that gets you pretty close to when, uh, you know, when we need to start thinking about meeting these goals, it seems. Yeah, these, I mean, some of these goals, they seemed far away, but in the timeline, in the, in the world of like building big infrastructure, like 2030 is right around the corner and 2045 is not that far off either. So I want to, I want to follow up on a couple of those points about technology, but I think Dan, uh, Dan looks like you wanted to weigh in here too. Well, maybe the one bonus that's coming out of this is what's happened on Monday when President Biden signed the infrastructure bill now infrastructure law, which will be putting billions of dollars into California for things like grid and transmission upgrades. And we now have an opportunity where we have the political will, the political agencies coming together in order to start to do the organizing that I'll agree with everyone needs to be done. But we also have the finances. And that's one of the hardest things that we often stumble upon is, is how do we pay for these projects that we want to be able to do? As John's saying, it's now cheaper to be able to use the renewables, but programs like the transmission, uh, the long duration storage, the geothermal, the offshore wind, to be able to couple that with the infrastructure finances that are coming and the potential May surplus that we'll have here in California can be a secret ingredient that we need to be able to accelerate all of these and ensure that we meet our goals. You, you took the question out of my mouth, Dan. I definitely was going to ask about the, the infrastructure bill. Um, I, I'm curious how how much do you all think that the you know the funding and initiatives in the the bill that was just signed by by Biden will help versus um I guess versus as well how much uh, how much more there might be in in this transition in the uh, you know the reconciliation bill that hasn't passed yet. Um, I, I think it's a significant moment, and okay. and as Dan said, I think it represents a shift in our opportunities. So. The, uh, as has been raised, the affordability issue and utility rates is becoming a dire issue that people can't pay their bills from the from the pandemic. And you've got also 
uh, utility debts and things like that. So, you know, at some point, we're going to have to face up the need to have investment, not just be in utility rates, but to use public financing as well. And what the infrastructure bill does is create opportunities for partnerships with the federal government on particularly building transmission. Uh, I, I think the key to making transmission cost less is how you finance it. Uh, currently, we put things in utility rate base and send it to FERC and end up with a 12 or 13% rate of return when you've got available long-term financing at 3 or 4% that can save a lot of money and, and, and help us. So I think there's a moment now, both state resources because of the, the governor's willingness to invest general fund money that we're blessed to have, along with the federal uh, incentives. Uh, there's tax credits, I believe, for new transmission investment. Also, it may be in the Build Back Better rather than the main infrastructure bill. But, but when we get done with this, we'll have a new landscape that will help us with our implementation, which is why our planning has to be ambitious and vigorous and up to date. So, Julia, you talked about building, um, and, and I want to I circle back to the point about utility costs and electric rates um, when we get to maybe the, the electrification part of this discussion. But, you know, Julia, you talked about building Daggett, uh, solar plus storage. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about different kinds of technologies. And so I want to start with this. Are you guys building or do you think anyone's going to be building standalone storage in California at this point? Or is it all solar and uh, or standalone solar, I should say, or is it all stand uh, solar plus storage at this point? Um, going forward, I think you you are going to see most, if not all, solar projects paired with battery storage. That's that's true of our pipeline. One of the things that's that's interesting and exciting about the Build Back Better bill is that it includes an investment tax credit for storage. So one reason that you've seen solar and storage co- always uh, co-located together is that when they're part of one project, you can claim the investment tax credit on the whole project, including the storage. If they're separate, you can only claim the credit for the solar. If that changes, if we get Build Back Better, which hopefully, um, that may change the economics where you, you there would no longer be such a driver from the tax credits to put those projects together. In theory, from the perspective of the grid, the benefit is there whether the project, whether the solar and storage are on the same parcel of land or down the street from each other, the storage can still provide that that benefit to the grid and you know, electrically would still be storing the energy from the, the solar project down the street. Um, so some of that is related to the tax credits, but, but absolutely there's standalone storage in development today um, because it serves a different need and can be more flexible on the grid. And I think we will see more of that as well. And I, I alluded to this earlier, but there's been, um... You know, there's been this issue. We had these uh, two evenings last summer with rolling blackouts after after sundown when, uh, you know, the solar went offline and there just weren't the resources there during this in- intense climate fueled heat wave to, to pick up the slack. Um, you know, there's been talk for several years about too much solar in, in the middle of the day. We're exporting to other states. We're paying other states to take it, et cetera. And then we have this evening crunch. I guess I'm curious. Um, and and I'll, Julie, I want to start with you and then I'll pass this to others. Um, what, what, what do you make of this idea that, uh, you know, that we have this perhaps surplus of solar now and need to start focusing on, on other technologies? How much room do you think there is to keep building out, you know, solar, at least if it's got storage versus a need to start investing in, in other types of clean energy technology? Yeah, I think when, I'm, I'm glad you raised that. So, you know, when 
when solar is paired with storage, I think there's room again, and that pairing can be on site or it can just be, you know, simultaneous on the grid. There's room for a lot more. Um, and that really what we're seeing now is like just a huge success. Like I want to take a step back as Dan did earlier. The fact that we're now in the position of like, wow, we have so much solar on the grid. What are we going to do with it all is just an incredible success story for the state. Um, one of the things that really stood out in, in the story of the blackouts last summer was really how little storage there was on the grid. So there is a ton of storage in development. And even this summer, there was much more um, grid scale energy storage online. In the summer of 2020, there was very, very little um, because we just hadn't kind of reached that point in deployment of that technology. And that is, that's really unfortunate and could have made, that really could have made the difference if we had been, you know, a year, if we had gotten started a year earlier on some of that large scale procurement and driving um, construction of large amounts of energy storage, I think we, we could have avoided the blackouts last summer. Um, but, you know, let's, I think we, we need to give the agency some credit, like the blackouts happened at around 9 p.m. and Indeed, the sun was not shining at 9 p.m., but nobody nobody expected that. We plan the, the the grid is planned with that understanding. So, really, storage is the key to be able to capture the solar that's meeting what used to be the peak in the middle of the day and shift it to where the peak is now, which is in the evening. Jinder, what do you, what do you think here? Uh, storage, other technologies. Uh, what do we need to start doing to stop this uh, reliability stuff from happening? So, I absolutely agree on the storage piece here. And I, I want to first take a step back as well, because I think a key part of the issue of the blackouts that seems to get missed quite often, you got it in the question, Sammy, was we had an extended climate event over the West. And so it wasn't that there was an unavailable amount or a decreased amount of energy available in the West. Every state with that native generation needed that power for their own needs. And so the landscape in which we're planning for in terms of energy has to not only include growth in other sectors or growth in load for California, but it needs to anticipate that we won't have as much access to the power outside of California that we've historically had because we are experiencing climate change events. And so storage has to be a key there, but there's different forms of storage. Like I think, you know, Hydrogen is a form of storage. It's an energy carrier that can be there and it can be safely kept and made available to um, the grid. It can be made available to other, other energy streams for other sectors. And so I think the concept of storage is right. I think it can take several forms. Dan, uh, John, you guys are in the trenches on this stuff. Uh, we're getting into this conversation about hydrogen and other forms of storage and maybe geothermal. What, what do you guys think we need most badly right now to start, uh, to start working on? Well, I, I would say the lesson in both uh, storage and renewable procurement is we need a balanced portfolio, both technologically and geographically. Um, because the RPS and early implementation emphasize cost, um, uh, geothermal has been excluded, even though geothermal provides great value to the grid, particularly for the very problems we're discussing in the evening. Um, so we have now a, a thousand megawatts of a high capacity uh, a zero carbon resource, including geothermal on the way. But again, transmission is a barrier. In terms of storage, we've got a, a, a same principle of, of a balanced portfolio. 
We don't want only battery storage because four to eight hours isn't all that we're going to need. We're going to need uh, seasonal and multi-day storage, which is where hydrogen comes in. But also, uh, there's a pumped hydro project that it's under development in San Diego County, 500 megawatts, right a mile and a half from the transmission line. It's an existing reservoir that only needs a second basin. So there's different opportunities around the state, but this is where we need to have our eyes wide open on the planning side so we understand how much resources, how many resources we need, the need for diversity and the need for planning and coordination of the infrastructure needed to bring them, excuse me, online. I think I would just add two points. The first is we sort of need it all. Um, and so there's no shortage of what we can do in all the projects, whether it's offshore wind or geothermal or long duration storage, they should all be used. And the one thing that'll be important for the agencies to figure out is how do we increase the redundancy? So we don't want to just be coming in at a, at a small number, but we need so much so quickly, we shouldn't be afraid to overbuild right now because overbuilding right now is going to get us just to where we need to be in 10 or 15 or 20 years. And so we have to get past this concept of just having enough every single year to meet the, you know, the hottest day or the you know, the craziest day in terms of the weather. And we have to get to the point where we're thinking in 10 years, what's going to be the hottest day and how much do we have to build now to be able to prepare for that? We've got to use some of the infrastructure money, some of the buyback better if it, you know, if it if that's able to come, some of the surplus that we have now to take advantage of that, because what costs a lot now will cost a lot more in the future. And we've got to be able to look toward that and, and prepare. I want to add something based on Redinder's comment about the West and the interrelationship. I think this illustrates why we've got to push forward with better integration across the region. We don't want to have a situation where we and the states are fighting with each other over scarce resources and trying to take care of ourselves and not take care of them. And so, so we need a regional grid that can give us better utilization of transmission, better sharing of reserves, and better ability to roll with the punches, so to speak, uh, when there's a grid uh, emergency. Hmm. Def- definitely want to get into the grid conversation too, but um, you know the wider Western integration. Um, you know, one comment that several of you have raised now, Virginia, you brought up that uh, you know climate change is is exacerbating these heat events and making some of this stuff harder to deal with. Um, you know, one one thing that I would add there is we you know we've seen really significant declines in hydropower production yes. um, this year due to drought, and uh, you know I'm not sure exactly how that's being handled at the moment, but there was a bunch of research that came out of the last drought that. The result was natural gas generation, um, you know, going up significantly to replace the lost hydro. Um, so it's like, you know, I, I understand the idea that, well, you know, there was only so much we could do about the events last August because, you know, this was a you know semi-unprecedented region regional heat event that saw everyone straining all of the resources. But I mean, at the same time, it seems like all the evidence is that we're only going to be getting more events like that, plus the hydro. Um, how... How do we, I mean, Dan, you talked about overbuilding and that we shouldn't be afraid to overbuild. Um, You know, when I talked to the PUC and there's been some criticism of the PUC here, which is not super surprising to me, but, you know, they, you know, when I talk to them, they're they're still quite concerned about that cost question. Um, And that's not a criticism. As as John said, there's, you know, real significant concern here that, uh, you know, between the cost of these clean energy investments and also electrification, that that rates are going to be going up and are already starting to go up. 
Um, the PUC is going to have a, a new president, Maribel Batcher, stepping down. Uh, the governor is going to have a choice to replace her. I, I think what I'm building towards here in a, in a question is if, if you're, uh, you know, Governor Newsom right now, or if you're the, the new head of the PUC, how do you how do you handle this? How do you, you know, approach sort of changing your mentality, but also doing it in a way that uh, um, that, you know, you're taking into account these very real concerns about costs that exist? So I'm asking you to, to fix what you all think is wrong with the PUC here, basically. Well, I think, first of all, the step that has made the most difference recently has been uh, the SB 100 report and the interagency task force uh, working group that's based at the CEC. And, and what this has done is to sort of liberate the commissioners at the PEC from the bubble of San Francisco and allowed them to be out and amongst their colleagues and hearing other ideas and, and in particular, very high quality analysis that was done by the Energy Commission and the PUC and the ARB and the SB 100 report. So I think there is a recognition that we need a more holistic uh, look than we often get at the PUC because everything is divided up into little subsets of proceedings mm -hmm. that often don't connect to each other. And this makes uh, uh, policy making uh, and planning difficult. I, I also think there's some management issues that have uh, long been present at the PUC. So hopefully uh, the ability to manage the agency and have it be able to execute more successfully, for example, on transmission. There's a significant backlog of projects that between the RUs and the PUC haven't been approved and haven't been constructed, even though there's no controversy, even though there, there are upgrades within existing corridors and badly needed. Um, and and so, so there needs to be a, a focus on managing the work of the agency and also overseeing the investor-owned utilities so that they perform uh, as opposed to, to not. Yeah, I can jump in. And I mean, first, I, I you know, certainly don't envy the, the governor and the incoming PUC chair, whoever that may be, for like they have a very difficult task ahead of them. I think the solution, like the, the how I would reorient is really thinking about the big picture as we're speaking to right now. I think the, the, the problem with the, just the structure of how the PUC handles proceedings is um, you're looking at one investment at a time and one thing at a time. And so the cost you're looking at, like, should we, should this project go forward or not? Or should this procurement go forward or not? And you're looking at the cost of that and you're saying, that's a big number. I'm concerned about that cost. But what's really important is to step back and say, what's the alternative? How much is it going to cost to not make these big investments in renewables and transmission? Because the alternative isn't, we just keep the system we have today and everything works great into the future. It's, you know, whether it's impacts of climate change, whether it's this kind of just-in-time rushed procurement, which always costs much more, um, it's really being able to have that perspective in a way that I, I think sometimes the PUC is, is constrained or feels constrained, that they can't take that broader perspective when the decision in front of them is very granular, um, like approving or not approving a specific cost. And I think I would argue that it's time for the governor to take a lot more of this authority back and that the current system that we have with these different agencies was invented in some cases 100 years ago to deal with different problems. 
but that the problem of climate change and clean energy are a lot different. They don't sort themselves out into a one group deals with the price, another group deals with the siting, another group deals with the transmission. I mean, you would just, if you were putting this all together today, you would never set it up like that. And my proposal would be for the governor in the short term has got to become an expert on clean energy, climate issues, and to be able to be, have a much firmer hand on these agencies to direct them. There has to be one person accountable in the state of California for moving us forward on this, this multi-agency, multi-people, commissioners, staff. It just is too diffuse from a political perspective. And as more and more of the public gets fully engaged in this issue, as the polling continues to show, we want to be able to look at one person and to say, this is the person who's going to make the plans, approve them, and move it forward. Jinder, it looked like you were going to weigh in there too. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought the SB 100 process was a really big improvement from CARB's perspective in that it brought the lens of public health and the environment protection climate change into the conversation, into the energy agencies where traditionally they they aren't mandated to consider something through those lenses um, explicitly in everything that they do. And so I remember having conversations with my colleagues and often saying, so from CARB's perspective, we cannot support this because it doesn't work from a public health or an environmental protection perspective. And over time, there was an appreciation and an opening up to what could be left on the table for options and what should be taken off. For example, we did take off the table CCS with coal because even though CCS with coal could get you zero GHGs and, and, or close to zero, it just was not gonna work from a market signal perspective about bringing that resource back into the mix. It wasn't going to work from a public health perspective, and it wasn't going to work from an environmental perspective. And so I thought that the SB 100 process, having all three agencies together, was a really good step forward in making sure that um, that collaboration and all of those facets were being considered as on in energy policy. I'd also like to give a shout out to uh, the L.A. Department of Water and Power and the NREL team that did the LA 100 study, because that's the other place to look for how to go about this. They've got a very ambitious, but a very detailed plan, and they have a lot of public participation. Give a lot of credit to Mayor Garcetti, but also to the management and team at LADWP, and also SMUT, which is similarly looking at a very ambitious strategy, but also at detailed implementation on a holistic basis. You know, John, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because as I sort of alluded to earlier, one of the, you know, one of the findings that came out of that NREL study for City of Los Angeles was a finding that LA could, could do uh, 100% by 2035 um, in all likelihood 10 years ahead of schedule. And that's a, you know, a goal that's been adopted now by the mayor and city council here. Um, I guess I'm curious, do you think is that something that the state should be considering? I mean, Governor Newsom has said he thinks 2045 is too long to wait, but I, I don't think there's been much follow up on that. Um, you know, what, if anything, can or should we be doing to, you know, speed this up from 2045? Uh, I, I would argue emphatically, yes, we should speed up the goal, having worked on, as many of us did on that SB 100 to set the target for 2045. We always knew is the RPS, even from the first one, after that first RPS passed, we saw in real time, in real life, what it looked like to have big industries come in and start to adopt clean energy at an economic scale that we hadn't seen before. And we were able to beat our goals every year on that. And we should do the same thing with the RPS and we should 
um, speed up the goal. There is a question of, you know, that last five or 10% and how much will that cost? And, and I think that's a great question for the agencies and people at CARB and the CEC to sort of wrestle with, but we've got to put the goal out there and let the industries come in to tackle that. Virginia, I guess I'm curious what your thoughts here are, because you've been working so hard to figure out how to do 2045. Uh, what, what does it make you think when, when someone says do it 10 years faster? Um, so I think about implementation. I think about the uh, costs that are going to be incurred, because there is that accelerated scenario in the SB100 report. I think about the costs. I think about permitting. And I think about that commitment um, that's going to have to be there. And it has to be all hands on deck. And there has to be some acknowledgement that um, we need to streamline some of the permitting and processes across the various agencies. Um, Julia made a great point about how 2030 is right around the corner. And we keep getting asked at ARB, are we on track to even hit our 2030 target for the state? And what we're seeing is things need, projects need to break ground now to hit that target in 2030. And so when I think about 2035, in my mind are some of the obstacles. Um, but I hope is that because there's this funding available from the federal government and there's potentially a surplus and funding, more funding available next year, that we can make a, a bigger commitment in the near term and actually start moving some of these projects and have a better permitting streamlined process for them to start going. Hmm. So I think one of the things that's key for LADWP that they've emphasized is the need to build a significant amount of uh, transmission both within their system and to allow more imports. So, I mean, I do think this is a good time to talk about permitting then. I mean, it's been brought up a couple of times here. I mean, this is a topic that I've done a lot of reporting on, um, especially when I was uh, in, in the desert at the uh, Desert Sun newspaper for several years. I mean, almost anywhere you try to build a solar project or a large solar project or a large wind project in California, I found you're either going to be running into, you know, local oppositions from, from nearby communities who either... Um, you know, they're concerned how it's going to affect their quality of life, or they don't want to look at it, or they want to see some benefit from it to themselves, because the energy is probably going to the, the big cities on the coast. Um, or there's going to be environmental opposition or concern, you know, uh, building projects and sensitive ecosystems in the desert, how is it going to affect uh, birds? How is it going to affect other uh, sensitive species? Um, you know, these are these are real serious issues that are, are pretty unresolved at this point. I mean, Regina, you referred earlier to San Bernardino County. They essentially banned large solar projects in, in a lot of that county. And that's the largest county by land area in the state. And they've got a lot of sun and wind. Um, so I, I guess, you know, I'm interested in all of your thoughts. And, and maybe, Julia, if you want to start with this one, because I'd be curious your perspective as a developer, um, you know, how, how do we deal with this? And not just, I don't just mean, you know, how do you steamroll over whatever concerns are out there, but how do you, you know, quadruple the build rate or however much we need to speed it up while also you know, not doing serious environmental damage and doing it in a way that you build support from the communities that these projects are encroaching on. Yeah, we, we, this absolutely is a problem that we need to, we need to solve in order to be able to build at that volume that we know that we need. And you know, San Bernardino County is, is near and dear to us. That, that our Daggett project is in San Bernardino County. It was, Approved by the Board of Supervisors, we have a lot of support and enthusiasm about that project. And not long after that, the, is when the Board of Supervisors effectively closed the door behind us. And so as a result, there are not going to be more projects like that in San Bernardino County uh, until they re revisit that rule. I think that a lot of this really can be solved with um, 
better understanding of what it actually means to have a renewable energy project cited in your community. So, you know, Clearway is a long-term owner operator and we, we are not just, you know, building the project and leaving. We are going to be in these communities where the projects are cited for you know, 30, 40 plus years. And so having a good relationship and being a good neighbor is really important to us. In addition to the taxes that we pay, we, you know, we have, extensive community engagement efforts around our projects and a lot and that that is really important you know not we need to do that to be responsible and to be a good neighbor but it also helps people see the benefit of like what am I as a resident of this community getting out of this project being cited uh, nearby because it it can seem you know at a, at a remove um but this is absolutely something that at a state level we need we need to be thinking about because there are so many local level decisions. You know, we can have this state policy. We know where we need to go. We know how much new wind and solar and storage we need to site. But ultimately, it's not within the power of the state right now to ensure that there's actually a place to put all of those resources because it is a, a decision made by you know, hundreds of different local actors all over the state. And so, you know, we we do need to find a way through that as the industry. I think we, you know, we want to make sure that we're doing our part and showing, you know, the jobs that we're bringing, the economic investment that we're bringing in, you know, often in disadvantaged communities, the relationships and engagement that we have. Um, but we, you know, we, we definitely need need help from, from those around us and helping to make the case for why, um, why counties and cities should be excited to have renewable energy located near them. If I can uh, raise an issue that I, I, I think is, is behind the scenes part of the problem is the solar industry made, a, a, in my opinion, a, a grievous mistake some years ago in seeking, without even a public hearing, uh, a tax, uh, property tax exemption for a solar projects. And this has poisoned the well with some of the local governments because you know, wind and geothermal both have to pay property taxes, and it's 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 simply something that that we shouldn't have done, and and it's and it's affected relationships. I also think that we need to recognize that the, there's limits to how much solar we can put in the desert, given the land use constraints, and we need to focus on uh, the amount of solar that we could probably shift to the Central Valley. There's a lot of land in the Central Valley that is a uh, 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 disturbed and no longer able to be in agricultural production and more is coming because of groundwater limitations. So this is Central Valley is a place I think we could put a significant amount of solar, 10,000 megawatts, maybe more, but we can't do that if we don't have transmission. So we need to recognize that uh, this, and this gets to why we want an all hands on deck policy and a holistic view. As, as Rajinder said, we've got to be able to talk to local governments and say, look, you need to participate. Climate change is affecting you. You can't simply take this position and we don't want it. Okay. On the other hand, as Julia said, successful developers like Clearway and, and others have built good relationships at the local level and have uh, run good campaigns on siting, including with the environment. So I think this is doable, but I think we need the large scale long term plan for context to explain why this is important. And then we need to take a serious look at community benefits and being sure that the communities receiving these projects are actually getting some significant benefit from them. 
Dan, I, I see you want to weigh in here, I think. But before you do, um, just Julie, I'm sorry I'm going to put you on the spot, but I blame John for raising the point. Uh, should solar developers be paying local property taxes? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. So just to be clear, solar projects do pay property taxes. So the solar equipment itself is exempt from property taxes, but we do pay taxes on everything else. So the land, the buildings, the roads. And so Daggett, for example, Daggett is going to pay about $18 million in property taxes um, over the course of the project. So it's, it's definitely not the case that, um, that we're not paying taxes. But, you know, the solar industry has been clear that the when the current exclusion expires at the end of 2024, um, we're not going to be looking to extend that at 100%. We're going to look to some of our peers and we're, we, we recognize that that has become just an unhelp. It, it's not serving us in the relationships with some of the counties is this perception, even if it's not entirely accurate, the perception that, that we're not contributing our, our fair share. And we absolutely want to be doing that. Thanks, Julia. Uh, Dan, I, did you want to weigh in here too? Well, yeah, I, I just want to emphasize that the point you're making is a critical one, and it shouldn't be overlooked that we have to do two things incredibly quickly, which is one, move to clean energy as fast as possible to stave off the worst impacts of climate change, and two is protect our biodiversity. I mean, many people are saying we're in the sixth wave of an extinction crisis here in, the, in this world, and while every species that we lose here draws us closer and closer to that tipping point, so we, we have to be able to do those two things incredibly quickly. We need to be able to work with large-scale solar to be able to put up these projects. But as you've written eloquently about for years at this point, solar on people's rooftops, whether it's on their home rooftop or the, you know, the rooftop of a big box store or the rooftop of the warehouses in San Bernardino and Riverside, these are all places that are already disturbed that we've got to figure out the incentive programs that get the owners of these places to want to put them up with the local um, cities and counties to encourage that tax base. But that's an opportunity that's sitting right in front of us that we've got to take more advantage of. So I'm really glad you brought up rooftop solar because that's definitely where I wanted to, to take this next. Um, you know, you, you alluded to this. There's a, uh, you know, there's this fight happening right now over net energy metering at the Public Utilities Commission, which, you know, for years and years, NEM has been the main sort of incentive program to get to get this stuff built. Um, there's an effort by the, you know, by the investor-owned utilities and and by you know some some others who you know NRDC various environmental justice groups who think this program is inequitable. Um, there's big pushback to to keep it as is. I guess I am um, Dan. Maybe if you could, if you want to just keep it keep it rolling here. I'm I'm interested what what you think uh, you know ought to be done with uh, with net metering and and what you make of some of these concerns that have been raised. Um. You know, I think that when you have a project like solar that is responsible for so much of the clean energy that we have here on the grid that's accelerated so quickly, we've seen where some people are, are going to have concerns about it. Um, I don't downplay the environmental justice issues, um, but I think oftentimes when the consumer groups and the utilities are looking at this, they're not seeing, again, as you've written about so eloquently, the full benefits of rooftop solar and the ability to have that energy either in your home, in your business, in your warehouse, or directly within the community. And that a future for 100% clean energy here in California has got to be one where we have distributed energy resources that are able to provide homes and communities with the clean energy that they need and not simply dependent upon large power sources where they would then have to ship the energy around the state or around you know, the Western states to be able to do that. 
and refocusing how we look at building more um, really distributed power within our communities is going to be key going forward. The PUC has a critical, you know, has this critical decision to make. They've got to look at all of the issues impacting it and not just look at sort of how this is going to affect short-term rates, but overall, how do we protect the environment and protect the rate payers here in the state? And the, other yeah, go part, the other part here is to recognize that the incentive that net metering originally proposes, the rationale has shifted. So we don't need more solar in the middle of the day. So paying extra for that privilege is, is, is an issue now. But as Dan said, we have to look at where the future lies and what we see with rooftop solar and distributed uh, technology like demand response, as well as pairing solar uh, with, with battery storage is the ability of behind the meter resources on the customer side to, to not just provide energy in the middle of the day, but in fact, to shift through storage uh, the ability to send energy to the grid after the sun goes down when we're running all the gas plants. So the value of rooftop solar in the future is going to is going to increase, but how we compensate it needs to needs to be shifted. And the PUC in making this decision needs to be thinking about the transition so we don't leave the, the rooftop solar industry strand. Only thing I would want to add is that between rooftop solar or di distributed solar, not just rooftop and utility scale, is that these are not in competition with each other in any way. They are complementary, and we need to build. You know, I, I keep thinking about like this question about whether we're on track. We just need to build as much as we can, as fast as we can, and that's true for us on the large scale side, and it's true at the distributed side as well. Um, there was like a really interesting study that came out last year that was on the technical potential of, of distributed solar, including community solar, as well as rooftop and found what I thought was the most interesting takeaway from that is that in the models that they ran, the scenarios with the most distributed solar actually had more utility scale solar as well, because they were complementing each other. The utility scale was providing bulk power to the system and distributed resources, especially with storage. Storage is, is really key for that. They're able to help balance at the distribution level. So um, we, we, we really do uh, need both. You know, Rajinder, I'm definitely interested what, what you're seeing it from Carver's perspective on the role of distributed resources, but in, um, in particular, Julia mentioned community solar, um, you know, which is an area that um, I think everyone would probably agree California has not been uh, a leader on. We just don't have that much of it, um, don't have that many policies um, in favor of it. Uh, what, what do you make of community solar and how that fits into this uh, distributed discussion? We, this conversation on community solar comes up every time we work on the scoping plan. It definitely comes up in terms of communities wanting to feel like they have more say and more um, control over what is delivering energy locally to, to their households and to their vehicles. And so this is not something new that comes up at CARB. I think for us, the challenge is that when we do our scoping plan exercises, we stay very high level at the, at the state level and it's across all economic sectors. And so for CARB, we can go through the process of talking about what communities want because we have the Environmental Justice Advisory Committee in AB 32, their priorities, but we can't drive that decision-making. We don't really have a say in the decision-making because that's handled at some of the proceedings at the PUC and then some of the actions at the local level. So we can tell the story on behalf of communities and our scoping plans. We can't 
take action on, on what the communities are preferring here. But in terms of the relationship between community solar and utility and, and distributed solar, I absolutely think there's a role for all of those to coexist. And I think we see that when we have the wildfires and a major transmission line goes down, if you have backup regionally or locally, you have a backup and you're not going to take somebody's groceries that they buy once a week and have them spoil over three days and then not have the money to go buy more groceries. So I absolutely think they need to coexist together. If it's not CARB's job, whose job is it? What, what needs to happen for more community solar to get built in California? Well, I think for CARB, it's to like tell the story about why this is important. And I think it also has to be something that is um, elevated in the political discussion about how to actually manage some of the local impacts from wildfires. It can't just be the large utilities in that space trying to handle the infrastructure by themselves, because I think that resiliency piece, that story on resiliency is about having distributed and community solar. And I think that has to be part of the solution mm. here. Um, I think I think it hasn't, I think, I'm sorry. Do, no, I no, go I, ahead, Regenda, go ahead. Okay, I was gonna say, I think it hasn't progressed that far because we've been doing that catch up, right? There's a wildfire, there's an event, and we're jumping on that event to, uh, to mitigate that impact immediately. But I think that planning exercise needs to consider a community and distributed solar and actually start to align policies to make that happen. So we're starting to get some audience questions here, but um, you know, one, one more topic I wanna just build into, Regender, from what you were just saying. Um, lots of discussion about uh, resiliency and you know what we need to do to get our our you know local and large scale infrastructure in shape. Um, you know, electrification has come up a bunch of times here. Transportation, buildings. You know, the the main concern I hear from folks when I write about electrification is uh, you know one the the power's already going out more often than I would like it to be, or there's already these concerns about reliability. Um, you know, what's the future going to look like when my my heating and my water heating and my stove are also on the electric grid? Um, and then there's the the rate question. I mean, solar and wind are are clearly uh, you know among the the cheapest, if not the least costly forms of energy. But when we start talking about people needing to you know switch out their appliances or you know putting more on their electric bill, that's um you know we have high electric rates in California. So I, Regender, maybe if you could start here, I guess I'm just interested how how you're thinking about these issues at CARB of how do we how important is this electrification thing to meeting our goals and how do we do it in a way that actually works for, for people's, uh, you know, energy costs and for reliability? So from a public health perspective, in terms of harmful local air pollution, like NOx and PM, it's, it's vital that we start to electrify transportation all across all the fleets. And there is a NOx benefit from um, electrifying buildings and indoor air quality benefits from just a public health perspective. It makes sense to do this. As part of the discussions in the scoping plan and in a workshop that we hosted a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the rate impacts and we talked about how we need to manage that, especially for the low income households across the state who are already bearing the burden of the disproportionate impacts of local air pollution. And they're gonna bear the ongoing impacts, disproportionate impacts of climate change. And so how to take care of the needs of those vulnerable communities, those vulnerable houses has to be front and center, but there has to be a recognition that this is also a public health um, issue. It's not just about reliability. It's not just about um, climate. It is about public health as well. Anyone else want to weigh in? Uh, yeah. Don't forget that for California, heat is now one of our, our key natural disaster killers. And when we get these heat waves, um, they cause death to people because they don't have um, community resilience centers in their neighborhood or they don't have the cooling that they need in their own homes. 
And as we've talked about, when the climate crisis gets worse and the heat continues to go up, this is the kind of public health crisis that we're going to see and that we need to get on top of right now. I think also the, the Dan's point uh, and Regender's point illustrates a couple of things. One, microgrids are, 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 are a way to get community solar built. But as Regender said, there's an, an implicit bias that the utilities know best. And so we're doing stuff like let PG&E build gas or diesel generators by their substations and, and call that a microgrid. And, and at the same time, penalizing clean resources um, that are uh, owned by third parties that could together provide a combination of, of, uh, of solutions. So, so I think um, Dan's point about um, uh, the resiliency and the cooling centers, the, 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 the Blue Lake Rancheria up on the North Coast has done a really good job of building a local microgrid that has uh, ability to provide solar and, and batteries uh, at their gas station where people can come and charge their batteries and refrigerate their medications and get fuel if they have to evacuate. So, so those are the kind of things that we need to look together and look at community resilience, community solar. And the last thing about electrification is that if we increase the amount of electricity that we use, we're gonna need a bigger grid. We're gonna to need to build more things, but we're gonna have a, a broader base to spread the costs over. So electrification could actually lower costs uh, for other utility rates. So let me, points all well taken, since you ended with the cost uh, point, John, let me, let me follow up here with an audience question that's related to that. Um, California, this is from, from someone listening here, California has some of the highest kilowatt hour prices in the nation and rate increases requests filed by the IOUs to the CPUC could make our rates the highest in the country. I, I just should put it here that I, I haven't fact-checked that statement, but obviously electric rates are quite high in California. That continues, the current electricity rate structure is unsustainable and causing a financial crisis for many residents throughout the state. Can we meet our clean energy goals in a fair and equitable manner while reforming the rate structure to be more affordable and reasonable? And I'll, I'll pose that to whoever wants to delve into that one. I think we have to try. I think, first of all, um, we have to find a way to shift some of the costs to general fund. For example, the, the big source of rates at the moment that's driving is wildfire and, and grid hardening. Uh, investments. Uh, that's where the largest fraction of the rate increases are coming from. But at the same time, those rate increases are limiting our headroom in terms of adding uh, additional costs. So we have to look at things like public financing of transmission to make it cost less. Uh, and we also need to look at other sources of funds uh, to help support the goals that we're meeting. Um, but I, I think the, the, the challenge is affordability is gonna be key to public acceptance as in our ability to sustain this effort. So we have to keep our eye on that issue very carefully. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And I think, I think there are a lot of things that, well, first of all, you know, the, the clean energy that's being added to the grid, as you know, we've said a couple of times, but worth repeating, is significantly cheaper than the average cost that's already baked into the rates. So, to the extent that we can add new uh, wind and solar projects, we're, we're that that should and that's able to displace something else that's in the mix. That in the long term is going to bring rates down, down not up. But I think this is a this is a totally valid question, and I think the question it is just a, a question with some of these expenses is how do we want to pay as a state? How do we want to pay for the things that we need? Are we going to pay? 
through electricity rates, or are we going to pay in another way? This is one of the tricky parts of, you know, talking about asking solar projects to pay more in property taxes, which, you know, we probably are going to move in that direction. But, you know, how does that work? So a project pays more in property taxes. The project is, has to cover all of its expenses with its revenues. So what that's going to do is that's going to be reflected in an increased cost of power. So it's really just a trade-off of who, who is going to pay. And I think when you think about big investments like um, whether it's transmission or wildfire costs, it, it is worth thinking about whether rates are the right way to, to pay for some of this as a state or if there's a lower cost way to do that. So another audience question we have here is about um, why all battery storage and not some hydrogen storage, given the limited length that batteries can store energy. Uh, so let me, I, I, just, I think I want to broaden this a little bit because we did have some discussion of this earlier. Um, you know, you, you guys mentioned hydrogen, geothermal, pumped storage, maybe. I guess what I want to ask is uh, if, if there was one technology that you could each pick um, that was not solar PV or onshore wind or lithium ion batteries, which have sort of been the, the big three so far, um, one technology that's either longer duration storage or something baseload that you think California, you know, should start investing in tomorrow, um, what would be the one technology that that, that you would pick and, uh, and why? And whoever goes first gets to, uh, you know, gets first dibs at this and then someone has to come up with something else. Well, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, yeah. and I, I would say offshore wind and it's not, yeah. maybe that's an easier call than some of the others because we're clearly moving in that direction. We're going to have a lease auction hopefully next year for the first offshore wind projects off the coast. But um, that's, that's a technology, you know, it is in some ways quite different from onshore. So in California, what we're going to be doing is floating uh, massive floating turbines uh, in the ocean, which is pretty pretty amazing just to think about the logistics. But that's a resource that is actually you're just accessing a completely different wind area than we have on on land, and is going to help help add, add um, help balance out um, the renewables that we have onshore. So Julia took offshore wind off the table. Who's who's got something next? I think geothermal uh, would be on my list. Uh, we've got a significant amount of it down at Imperial that can make a very significant contribution to the balancing of our portfolio, plus provide us with a source of lithium uh, to develop uh, lithium ion battery technologies within California. Regender, Dan's pointing at you. I was going to say, I keep running through the options in my head. And for every one of them, I'm like, there's a potential air quality issue. There's a potential public health issue. So I'm still running through the list because everything that I would have picked has been said. Um, you know, honestly, I think that we, we will have to keep some of our natural gas fleet. We will have to keep some of it for a while. And I think we need to repower it with something like renewable hydrogen or renewable gas and pair it with CCS. I don't think we're going to build out the transmission fast enough. I think that we need to look at look at that option and keep that option on the table. I just honestly do based on the data that we had in the SB100 process. The other technologies, I think they're just not really ready yet. Okay, very interesting. Dan, what uh, you, how are you gonna round us out here? Uh, well, I'll say what I think is oftentimes the, the sort of the grandfather of California's energy program, but also one of the sort of most boring, which is energy efficiency. I was hoping um, someone might say that. Well, <laughs> I, I think that's the one is, um, you know, we can save the, the best watt of energy that we don't use is, you know, sort of the one that we don't use or whatever that expression is. 
Um, and I, I think there's always more that we could be doing in there. There's new reports coming out all the time saying the different ways to improve the energy efficiency of our homes, of our uh, the way that we move the electricity around, and we should be doubling down on energy efficiency. Okay. Um, we're short on time here, so let me uh, let me just ask one more thing that I suspect there, there may not be that much discussion of. Um, Diablo Canyon Nuclear Power Plant, uh, scheduled to close right now in 2025. Uh, a lot of the procurement that the, the Public Utilities Commission has ordered, that 11.5 gigawatts is also geared towards having stuff ready to go when, when Diablo is gone. Um, you probably all saw there was a, a study that came out from researchers at MIT and Stanford, I think, last week, um, you know, basically putting some numbers to this, this argument that if California were to keep Diablo open, it would be potentially easier and cheaper to keep carbon emissions down um, because we wouldn't have to build all of this stuff to replace this giant uh, baseload carbon-free resource, which is the largest electric generator in California. Um, with that loaded question in mind, uh, does anyone here think that we ought to be reconsidering shutting down Diablo or is that a done deal that should not be part of the conversation? I think it's a done deal. And I think the problem with that academic study is that it doesn't have anything remotely like realistic cost estimates for what it would cost to keep that plant open for another 20 years. Um, very significant capital investments would be required. Significant capital investments are being made every year just to keep it running till 2025. So the good news is we have available options um, uh, that, uh, that can be used to displace Diablo. On the other hand, I think we need to be mindful that the time of the retirement needs to be matched with resources coming online that can help uh, replace Diablo. 30 seconds. Does everyone agree with John or anyone have a different nuance on it? Yeah, I'll just say, I mean, there are renewable resources, lots in the queue that are chomping at the bit to take, you know, replace Diablo and take some of that transmission, use some of that transmission capacity for renewables. So, it's an interesting question, but I think from our perspective, it, it had already been resolved. Okay. Well, with, with apologies to everyone for not getting back to the question of regional coordination, uh, I'm sorry to say that time is, uh, is up here, but uh, thank, thanks everyone for this great uh, discussion. I'll hand it back to Tim. Thank you all. Sammy, everyone, all of our panelists, uh, thank you so much for participating in this. This is a really fascinating discussion. And uh, uh, frankly, I wish you could all go on for about another hour. So uh, with that, I am going to uh, say goodbye and invite all of our watchers to check out our next panel discussion, which will start in about 15 minutes. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.